Folks, thank you for tuning in. In this episode, I speak with Sunil Bhatia. Sunil is professor of human development at Connecticut College. He's the author of dozens of articles related to transnational migration, identity, and cultural psychology. And he's the author of two books, American Karma, Race, Culture, and Identity in the Indian Diaspora, and Decolonizing Psychology, Globalization, Social Justice, and Indian Youth Identities. I first became aware of Sunil because of a really excellent interview that he did with madinamerica.com. It's a website that deals with science, psychiatry, and social justice. And uh, I would just recommend, obviously, listening to this interview with him that I'm going to present here in a moment. But that interview that he did with Mad in America is really excellent as well. And the title of that is When Psychology Speaks for You Without You. So in this interview, there's two questions I guess two major questions that are addressed uh, in this, which is, how has Western psychology aided in colonization in the past and up to the present moment? And what would a decolonized psychology include or exclude in its framework as such? What does it mean to decolonize psychology? In discussing this, I mean, I asked Sunil to sort of lay out the history of psychology. We need to understand that psychology is a rather young thing. It hasn't been around that long. And of course, it was uh, formulated in a very Western context, uh, whether that's in Europe or in the United States. And I think the problem here, part of the problem, and this is what Sunil addresses, is that psychology, its framework is very limited. You look at the roots of psychology, you look at the the Western mind, as it were, and how psychology has tried to identify and understand uh, human psychology through a very narrow lens you know, we're talking about predominantly white folks that live in these societies and other cultures, other societies, other ways of being are not really included in that framework. And in what ways has psychology as a social science been implicated in colonialism? You know, Sunil comes from India uh, and his books, of course, deal a lot with Indian society and Indian diaspora, um, which can be applied beyond just Indian society and Indian people. It applies to people that have experienced colonization. And there's a great deal of the human population that have been subjected to colonization over hundreds and hundreds of years. And so now we exist in this post-colonial time where colonialism in the formal sense is not really there anymore. You know, a lot of these colonial nation states from Europe that colonized the peoples of Africa, the peoples of South and Central and North America, of Asia, all these various places. I mean, now that they're living in a post-colonial context, how has the impacts of colonization left a lasting impact? Just because we live in a post-colonial period does not mean that colonization has gone away. Uh, This is what Sunil points to with internalized colonization and in the ways that neoliberalism and globalization under a sort of neoliberal uh, capitalist paradigm has perpetuated colonization in a variety of ways that are not analyzed as much as they should. And of course, Sunil is doing this work. And for a long time, I think he was uh, doing this work somewhat isolated. You know, he's 
he was addressing some very important things and, and, you know, really critiquing the role that psychology has played in colonization up to the present moment. And I think now more and more people are starting to catch up with him and with the others that have been uh, doing this kind of work. And again, asking the question, what does it mean to decolonize psychology? What does it mean for this social science to include, not to treat people that exist outside of the Western framework as being either irrelevant to psychology or are treated as basically second class or subhuman? Because that's a big part of this as well. You look at the roots of psychology, you realize that the founders of what we define as Western psychology now um, had very racist and colonialist views. They had no interest in really understanding indigenous perspectives of what we would define as psychology and to include broader and deeper framework. I mean, that's really what this comes down to because the human experience is broad and varied. It's not one thing. And so to apply a Western framework psychological framework to understand other peoples and other cultural social context it's not only is it insufficient it's oppressive and especially now as we're in the midst of this uprising in the united states where white supremacy is being addressed more forcefully than it has in a very long time asking these questions about the long-lasting impacts of colonization on minority groups in the united states and also peoples around the world that have been impacted by colonization. I mean, that is that is a part of this. That is a big part of this. I, I think it should be included in our understandings of what it means to decolonize something like psychology. And I mean, there's even this question that comes up in it. Like, if psychology, if, if it has this foundation of what we could even define as white supremacy, a kind of colonizing mentality... If we decolonize psychology, would it even be psychology anymore? What would we even call it at that point? So right now when we're talking about, for instance, uh, police brutality in the United States, those that wish to preserve the system are trying to say, well, we can reform. We can ban certain forms of detainment. I guess you could say like chokeholds by the police, or we can do all these things to, to reform policing in the United States. But really the more radical demands that are being presented right now No, we don't want to reform the system. We want to abolish it altogether. We have to start from start from scratch, so to speak, because the very root of policing itself is fundamentally white supremacist. You can't reform that. You can't make it less racist. It it is fundamentally racist. So we need to reimagine something far better than this. And it really ties into some other deeper questions about our history as a nation. So when we think about psychology as a social science, I mean, what does it actually mean to decolonize it? If psychology were to be decolonized, would it look anything like psychology anymore? Certainly it would be more holistic. Certainly it would be more diverse. And it would integrate a lot of different cultural and social perspectives into it. That's good. That is a more comprehensive thing. But would it even be psychology anymore? Do you know what I mean? So in a way, Sunil is is really raising these questions, and I think he's really on to something. He's been doing this work for a long time, and it's extremely important stuff. So I feel really fortunate that I got a chance to speak with this man and and to discuss his ideas and his work with some depth. What I would ask is, of course, just listen to this interview. I hope it sits within you and you really begin to think about what he's saying 
And, um, you know, maybe it'll expand inside you to think about other things in a different light. Uh, that is my hope. And also, I would just ask that people would go check out his work. Of course, there's several articles out there that he uh, has published publicly, but you can also go check out his book, American Karma, and his most recent book, Decolonizing Psychology. I'll provide links to those books in the description. I'll also provide a link to his uh, university page so you can learn more about what he does. And I'll also put a link to that interview he did with Mad in America. I think it's a really excellent interview. The transcript is on that website. And if you would like to learn more about this project specifically, about my podcast, you can go to the website lastborninthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be on that website. If you would like to support this project monetarily, there are two ways to do that. You can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal. You can go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. Or you can support this project regularly on a monthly basis through the Patreon page. You can go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. And by contributing to the Patreon page, you will gain early access to these interviews before the official public release. And there'll be some other uh, extras on that as well. But I really just want to thank everybody that supported me up to this point. I see you and I really thank you for your support. And uh, without any further delay, here is my interview with Sunil Bhatia. All right, well, Sunil... Thank you so much for taking time out of your day, out of your week to speak with me. I know last week we had planned to talk. I had something come up that I needed to attend to. So I thank you for being flexible with me um, and that we could, you know, figure out another time to do this. So I just really thank you for for agreeing to do this. It's really good to... I know it's an honor. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate the opportunity to speak about my work and hopefully answer your questions and have a nice conversation with you. Yeah. Well... You know, the first, as we mentioned before we started recording, I became aware of your work because of an interview you did with uh, Mad in America. Mm. Discuss your work in uh, discussing the kind of colonial roots of of psychology, um, what it means to decolonize psychology. And uh, I mean, this is really just my first question. I mean, when we talk about decolonizing psychology, what does that mean, not only to you, but I guess in the broader sense? What does that mean? You know, decolonizing uh, psychology is a really broad project. Uh, you can see it in two ways. You can think about it as looking at the field of psychology and thinking about how colonization, the colonial legacy, continues to live on in the field. So the entire theories, methods, knowledge or what we call knowledge production has been shaped by the colonial structure or the legacies of colonialism, specifically European colonialism. And how so much of what we understand about psychology of mental health, psychology of healing, psychological theories about self-personality are rooted in many ways in that legacy. And decolonizing psychology is intended to uh, examine the processes, the structures, the mechanisms um, that uh, create or have created this kind of psychology. And the way it lives in the past and the way that past influences our current contemporary theories, um, very much so whether you want to call theories that promote um, uh, you know, anti-blackness, theories that don't fully understand indigenous practices, theories that make uh, lives of people in the global south invisible. So 
so that's one of the projects of decolonizing psychology, what I would call it with a small d. The larger project of decolonizing with a big d, I would say, is, is a project in social sciences, in academy, as well as it has roots in different theories and different perspectives, just to highlight three of them uh, for your listeners. One specific a theory or root or perspective uh, comes from indigenous Native American studies, where decolonizing is not about the field. It is really specifically about reclamation of land, water, territory. It is not a specific uh, event as such like 1492. It's a structure that uh, Native studies scholars have spoken about. and there, it's not necessarily also a social justice struggle as in just being anti-racist, while there may be that framework that you can work in, but it's a larger, larger project of, um, um, you know, freedom and liberation rooted in, in possession back of land. And that has a very different ring and a meaning to understanding decoloniality. The second uh, history comes out of uh, post-colonial studies which has uh, some resemblance to decolonization in the Native American studies, but is also slightly different. That comes out of the experiences of um, British colonization of Africa and Asia. And so the post-colonial scholars who have lived in different parts of the world, whether it's Australia or the US after colonization, have looked and examined the ways in which the legacies of coloniality or colonialism continue to live in our policies, economic culture spheres, in terms of uh, economic models that we have advanced and continue to shackle the so-called uh, you know, developing world. And there we have also looked at uh, social sciences and literature as playing a really important role in showing us you know, how the project of colonialism was advanced through specific uh, theories about uh, human beings living in the global south, in in the so-called colonized um, territories. That was a project rooted in science to really demean and dehumanize masses and millions of people, which led to then the um, killings, for example, in Congo you know, 10 million um, Congo, uh, people from Congo were killed as Belgian expansion into Africa took place. Millions were killed in different parts of Africa and Asia. But postcolonial scholars have examined very clearly that knowledge in European knowledge was very complicit in advancing that project of colonialism. So that's a second kind of piece that looks at. So I'm just giving you a very brief definition. So it's more concerned with representations, like how is the how is the colonizer represented? How is the colonized represented? What stories were coming up at that time in anthropology and literature and narrative? And 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 then what influence does it continue to have in sort of post-colonial times? And the third one, which I think is much more uh, has gotten much more spotlight and attention too in the last uh, 10 years is what's called decolonial theory that comes particularly out of uh, the geography and social location, I would say, of scholars from um, South America. And there, they're looking specifically at um, 500 years of settler colonialism 
of, of different parts of South America. And there is a very specific link between modernity and coloniality and capitalism that is that is the so-called modern European Enlightenment. The project is very much linked to the uh, project of capitalism, which very much is, which advanced the project of slavery and the annihilation of indigenous people and so on. So while there are links in all three, those are much bigger projects, I would say so, uh, in, in terms of how decolonization is uh, conceived and each one of them has a different lens and and so my project in that sense is much smaller it's about a field as well as about thinking decolonizing in two ways as a field and decolonizing the mind as such too like the connection between structures and minds are very important to me mm -hmm. well i th i think what i i can only imagine what the pushback would be against this uh, approach I think one of the things that comes up is there's this, um, I guess, in the Western perspective, is that, well, psychology, just like all the sciences, are supposed to um, be objective, or at least achieve some sort of objective uh, perspective on things. So when it comes to psychology, they look at it like, well, we have models, and may, they may not be perfect, but they're at least trying to um, achieve some sort of objective understanding of, of the human mind, of human psychology. Um, and as you're saying, like they're excluding the vast majority of the human species, mm -hmm. the human race, and their mm -hmm. lived experience, not only in a kind of colonial, colonial or post-colonial sense, but just in a very general sense. You know, I mean, there's just a lot of exclusion there. So I guess mm -hmm. to ask you a question, if somebody, I'm sure you've had this 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 posed to you like, well, psychology is just supposed to be objective. Um, mm. Why would we want to include what we would define as spirituality or, or this philosophy of other cultures and, and, and uh, religions? I mean, why, why isn't it actually as objective as we think it is? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's um, in some ways, the entire history of psychology over the last 100, 120 years has been in crisis trying to address that question itself, whether is it a science, whether it's a social science, whether it's a study of people, it's a study of life. So there are several different perspectives. One way to answer your question is to sort of say that um, psychology comes out of a very provincial, local, historical, conceptual framework that is rooted in European colonialism it is rooted in American imperialism. It's rooted very much in American ideas and specifically ideas about white supremacy, about um, ideas about family and youth and self and identity and personality. When we say the American, the subjects of these studies, so to speak, or the participants would largely for over a hundred years, um, white population. So you're deriving an understanding of self and motivation and personality and how the mind works and how we make sense on a very li limited subject pool. And then you're advancing claims to the entire universe. So there's a certain kind of universality built in. And that was what I call the project of kind of modernity. You know, there's like this very strong rugged individualism in psychology that we are separated from community and culture. And we live in our heads and so to speak, 
uh, our meaning making or who we are as individuals happens entirely in this kind of self-contained body. That's a very specific view, a view emerging from uh, specific sets of historical practices. So the so the knowledge that's being produced is very political in the first place, very cultural in the first place. And then to make claims that somehow that's universal is to not recognize uh, the subjectivity of that knowledge or the limited scope of that knowledge as such, the cultural uh, through which um, through which all psychological theories are being manifested. And so that's sort of one of the answers uh, I would give is that it's a local psychology, it's a provincial psychology, then that becomes wrapped up through the language of science as universal, as rational, as enlightened, as modern, that everybody should consume. And then you have lots of different archaeology of uh, concepts and categories that come out of it. So there's a whole infrastructure to support it. That's what I argue in my book. That's what coloniality means. It has an administrative structure, bureaucratic structure. It has a structure of knowledge production, which very much resembles the mechanisms of how how colonialism or colonial projects were taken, like in education, for example, and so on. So, so those practicing decoloniality or decolonial scholars in psychology have argued that psychology, the structure of psychological knowledge in some ways has similar resembles to some of these colonial structures. And that's where we see the perpetuating continuing legacy. I just pointed to whiteness as one of this, but there are many other ways to point out. So when you say we have to undo this project, the undoing then involves asking questions about psychology's own history, psychology's own complicity in promoting um, a particular kind of history that was very damaging to a lot of people who lived in different parts of the world. Yeah, and that's what I would ask ne next is is to if you could give us some concrete um, examples of of the roots of Western psychology and how um, the the founders of that. I mean, I guess the the most uh, famous individuals that that participated in its construction and perpetuating it, um, you know, in this colonialist project. I mean, what are some examples that we can look to? I, I look to, for instance, just popping up in my head, I think of Freud and how largely the subjects that he was studying were, as you talk about, like middle or upper class people in Europe, basically, or or in America, in the United States. So there's that limitation already in there. And they were, all, and also his, his views towards women were not necessarily very progressive either. But I'm curious, like, what other um, examples can you point to of of how psychology was rooted in this? I mean, um, most of the key thinkers, and I have laid that out very clearly in my book and several other articles I've written, and not just me, but many other psychological books written by South African scholars, written by African American scholars, written by um, you know black British academics um, have contributed to this knowledge where this archive is out there with specific examples starting from 100 years. So for example, G. Stanley Hall, who's the founder of American Psychological Association and who taught at Clark University where I got my degree from, has uh, written in chapters very clearly because he coined the term adolescence. But somehow in his writings that we don't study and we haven't put 
you know, much attention to is that there, you know, his writings were very clearly uh, based on, you know, on the advocacy of certain kind of racism in colonialism, where he speaks about, um, and I have a, you know, I have a specific uh, quotation that I can uh, uh, read out to you because that might help um, uh, your, you know, readers kind of understand where I'm coming from. Um, um, no, I think it might, I might, uh, I, I, I don't have it pointed at a specific place, but he really speaks about the fact that we have to, um, he's very worried about the uh, people in the colonies, um, you know, populating themselves because he thought of themselves as inferior. And he speaks about, we need soldiers and thinkers mm. together to come together to find a way to curb this population, mm -hmm. uh, to domesticate this population. So he was also influenced by some of the Darwinian theories at that time. And Darwin was another one whose project between, you know, racism, the, um, some of his theories, underlying some of his theories uh, that we have looked at and have done several papers also uh, spoke very clearly about the consequences of the lower races again, populating and then dominating the um, so-called superior races. And there were all kinds of theories uh, that psychology drew on, including um, craniometry, that is, um, you know, in the, uh, how the, the size of their skull, for example, is a reflection of your intelligence and so on. And of course, inevitably, those who lived in the colonies or in parts of Africa had skulls that were, um, you know, lower as such, um, or their dimensions were less and therefore they were inferior. So there was a project between, I would say, 1850s, 1890s to 1920s, 30s, as part of the project of colonialism. You had, I have, I have in my book and articles noted people like Spencer, people like Darwin, people like G. Stanley Hall, and several others who went implicitly explicitly um, have contributed to what I would call a racial project of white supremacy and so on. Others after that, I think it's much more what I would call it takes on, you know, when we go from colonialism to cultural imperialism, it's not so stark, the racism, but legacies continue to live in where, which theories are being written, whom we read, what the canon is, and so on. And there it becomes much more structural rather than individual-based. So I think the conversation of colonialism to post-colonialism coloniality is not about isolating individuals and saying, here, these are the people who advanced racist ideas. It's really about looking and mapping all the practices. Mm -hmm. you know, and the, So when we say something is systemic, then we have to look at who's writing the papers, think about teaching, what are we teaching in our psychology textbooks, uh, whose theories uh, do we give importance to and so on. But, but let me pause here and also say that I don't want to paint a very homogeneous picture of all of psychology. Today you have psychology or psychologists that are also pushing back against this, this, um, um, that I would call very Eurocentric conception, which is based in psychological science and a very narrow way of thinking about knowledge and psychological knowledge. Uh, 
Today you have uh, indigenous scholars, cultural psychology scholars, you have narrative scholars, you who are part of the larger project, I would say, of critical psychology, who are also pushing back and trying to sort of rewrite the narrative of psychology. When you were starting to do your work, uh, did you feel that you were alone in this work? And now that there's more, that there are more scholars and, and folks that are working with you, do you feel like that's what's going on? Or have they always been present? And you've always been with, I guess you could say others that are a part of this struggle? I, I would say, uh, in the field that the time I was writing about in the last 20 years, there were fewer voices that were trying to disrupt or interrogate the so-called mainstream theories that were, you know, um, that were pointing to the racism within the field as such. So um, I would say looking back, yes, there was resistance to what I was thinking about, to writing within academy, within my own field, and some of my own colleagues too. Um, but I had the support of this work was going on in other disciplines too. So uh, in sociology, in gender and women's studies, in cultural studies, in post-colonial theory. So in that, that sense, my project became much more interdisciplinary. And I can tell you about how I arrived at this, this project of, of um, uh, of kind of looking at the coloniality of psychology via my first project, which was on the you know on um, the latent and blatant uh, you know anti-blackness that exists within South Asian communities. You know, I was uh, that was that was my book before this. It was called American Karma, and there. Um, there was looking at racial identity formation within the South Asian community, specifically the Indian community. So uh, that was my first, I would say, uh, inquiry uh, into trying to understand um, what does a, uh, um, why were, you know, our, our racial identity when we thought about um, sort of how do other migrant groups think about their racial identity? We knew a lot about white identity formation, but at that point in time, and black identity formation, but there was some something missing about what I would call South Asian identity formation. And being in that mid, mid position, I was really interested in finding out about how the legacy of colonialism impacts the immigrants here within the United States, especially Indian immigrants. So that was my first foray into looking at the connection between colonialism and psychology 20 years ago. And at that time, there wasn't this place to think about, think through, because there wasn't uh, in, within psychology, given the way it frames it, uh, there wasn't a way to approach this question as such. Mm, right. Well, I guess to ask about what you were talking about with your first project, with your first book, yeah. my, I guess the question that I was going to come up with or, or present next was this idea of internalized oppression, internalized colonization and how that manifests. And I know um, in reading your interview with uh, Mad in America, um, mm -hmm. you talk about the English language in particular and how that is a signifier of, of economic uh, prosperity or, you know, uh, career opportunities mm -hmm. Um, there is this uh, there's this internalized idea that I guess 
colonized or post-colonized populations have within a Mm. neo-colonial or excuse me, a neoliberal kind of global Mm. economic structure. We have to also include that, um, that, you know, speaking this language, which is a symbol of the legacy of colonization. I mean, speaking English is a part of that. So I just wanted to ask about the, uh, the identity of, of those that are living in a kind of post-colonial context um, that have internalized some of those, Mm. you know, they internalized the values of the colonizers, I guess you could say. Um, Yeah. I think one project that might be helpful even today to especially speak about the um, protests that are happening, you know, in the aftermath of uh, the tragic aftermath of uh, George Floyd's killing and killing of, uh, you know, Breonna Taylor's and so many others. Um, is being sort of how one of the questions has been asked is how is how does um, you know what is the role of South Asians or Indians how they're complicit in advancing anti-blackness or white supremacy you know how can they undo that how can they speak about racism within their own communities and that was I think one way that I can speak very clearly or I can speak in some depth to the question you're asking about um, um, sort of the influence of not just language, languages that can come back to it, but also um, understanding of social caste hierarchies, how they shape, for example, the immigrant diaspora or the South Asian diaspora. And then when they're placed here within the context of racial formation, racial hierarchies in the United States, how how they... Um, how they respond to that. So let me kind of make it more concrete to you is that um, um, large segments, uh, you know, of um, uh, so-called Asian Americans and also South Asians uh, who live within the United States uh, who are very highly educated came after 1965 were very highly um educated in the sense they were doctors and engineers and they were able to uh, um, in some ways start out at a very different point uh, as opposed to other uh, migrants, other black um, um, communities and other migrants, such as Latino migrants. Um, And so there's always been an unequal starting point in terms of how some of these Asian Americans have done well in terms of their median income. And one way to look at that is to kind of uh, think about why is that the case? You know, there's usually an understanding that somehow these immigrant communities have been able to advance themselves, have a piece of the American dream, and they're compared unfairly. Should they compare to other communities and say, look, these other communities, other racial communities, have been here for hundreds of years, but they somehow have not done as well as Asian Americans. So this was in the 1960s, politicians used this model minority politics to create a wedge between these different groups without acknowledging that many of the uh, South Asians came uh, in the 1960s as a very distinct advantage in terms of their education. So they didn't come essentially as working class labor and lived here in structural racism and very disadvantaged life. They came here with professional degrees and were propelled through a system that allowed them to really acquire social mobility. So part of um, answering that question is that 
so what are the ways in which then South Asians have been uh, explicit or, or have been um, entangled in um, uh, the project of white supremacy is to sort of not acknowledge the, that their advancement has come on the fights and struggles of people of color, black people specifically, who fought, who gave their labor, who made this country over 400 years, fought in the civil rights movement and provided the space for other groups, so to speak, to other immigrant groups to come in. So, uh, so part of my book, American Karma, really asks this question is not just about model minority, but how, like, what does silence mean? What does, you know, what does it mean to be silenced to white supremacy by benefiting from it? What does it mean to be indifferent to your own, so to speak, economic privileges? I'm not suggesting that the South Asians did not experience racism or so. But I, what I point out in my book, there's a paradox there. And the paradox is that many of the South Asians in my book spoke about the racism because of this. You know, I have a chapter called Saris, Chutney Sandwiches and Thick Accents. How their saris that they wore, how the uh, supposedly thick accents they had were made fun of or critiqued or they were racialized and they felt they did not belong here. Either they had uh, very severe, you know, different kinds of, um, um, different kinds of, um, uh, uh, different kinds of experiences of racism, which were highly, highly painful and disruptive. Um, being denied jobs, for example, mm being considered uh, uh, not part of the, um, being considered not as American citizens and so on. But at the same time, they were very afraid to speak about that racism. And that was what internal colonialism, internalized racism means, that you asked me the question of initially. And I wanted to give an explanation that it's not as simple as saying that I have internal colonialism or internalized racism. You to ask also the questions about how does it work? Where does it come up? And one of this is seeking proximity to whiteness, as I, as I write in my book. So, so these South Asians, especially Indian Americans who came here, are one of the most successful elite groups, but have largely remained silent for many years uh, on um, calling out the racism that exists within white America calling out the own racism they have felt. So what they have done instead is they've used what I've shown is three kinds of language to be silent about it. One is I call it the language of meritocracy. That is, we came here because we are successful, look at our degrees, you know, I earned it. This is a meritorious system by which I got my PhD and I advanced myself rather than looking at the structural opportunities that were given to them. Second, they speak about the language of universality. That is, you know, hey, there is racism everywhere. It's in Europe, but it's great to be here. You know, they speak about, I had this interview done by the mother who lived in a particularly white community and spoke about how nobody wants to play with her daughter because the, um, and this was about 25 years ago, and because, you know, they were seen as, as, Darker people didn't know them. People were threatened, afraid, 
but generally the idea was these were others. This is how she narrates that in my in the interview. But she says the way I'm going to counteract that is to make my child go to an Ivy League school and make her so uh, advanced and educated that this way they'll have to recognize her. So that's another way to think about internalized colonialism or internalized racism. She didn't think about the structures that we have in place that were creating her own experiences. Rather, her answer to it was, you know, let me become a model minority. And so then I asked her the question at that time is that, that um, um, do you think um, you, you had experienced the racism? Do you think this is racism? She completely denied it. She said, you know, no, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm, she's like, racism is everywhere. It's, and, and that's the universality. It's in Africa, it's in India, there's casteism. And then she go, went on to ex, ex share her experience of deep racism, but at the same time, she wanted to disavow it in the same breath. And that's the tension I articulate as part of. So there is, there was, there was complete articulation of her own racism. This is what happened to me. It was so shameful and I felt so inferior that my daughter, nobody wanted to play with it, but I'm going to disavow it and keep it contained and I don't want to talk about it. And then she gave answers when I asked her, well, don't you think there is racism? Don't you think, think about all the Latino communities, think about the black children who've gone through this for hundreds of years. At that point, her answer was much more um, in, in this meritocracy and universalist language. And then, her, and then the third piece, which, is, which I found in answers across my research is what I call colorblind ideology. That is, you find um, many of these uh, participants spoke about uh, the fact that we don't see color. Um, you know, W.E. Du Bois spoke about the problem of the color line, but there's also the problem of the color blind, you know, and here you could actually see her advocating many, many, many positions like her, um, that we shouldn't, we should look at general humanity and not specifically look at uh, race positions and so on. And so what the outcome of doing that research uh, showed me is this is how internal racism lives. And one very, important move as part of the so-called assertions of universality, assertions of sameness and assertions of universe, uh, individual merit is they're all rooted in this idea that Asian Americans, especially South Asians are, are a cultural group. So they specifically, very strategically reposition themselves as a cultural group as not as a racial group. So then they don't have to think about the racial experiences. So that's something that much of my research found out. So what are the mechanisms by which the internalized racism is actually never dealt with? Well, what it does, it just gets repositioned and it lives within the community, within the families, and there's no conversation about it. So one way to do it as a cultural group is to say, look, we belong to a cultural group that's 5,000 years old. And we have a very superior civilization. And so they speak not of themselves as Indian Americans, as a cultural group, meaning we have this ethnicity, we have this language, and, and framing it in cultural terms then, then gives them a space to be in a multicultural America where they can do their dances and performances and not have to deal with 
the direct racism that comes from embracing a racial identity where African-Americans and many Latinos don't have a choice. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. They have to almost. So, so those were what I would call. So you asked me to give an answer about internalized racism within my own research. So these are where I'm pointing to very concretely that how they were articulating it as such. Yeah, it's fascinating that different groups of, of people, whether you know we have uh, the black uh, populations in the United States, um, who are, of course, forcing, uh, demanding that they be treated as as equals in this society. To this day, we're still we're still grappling with the history of this country, and it's being forced upon us now to you know to talk about this again and again and again. Um, and now we're getting to a point where I don't think it's even a question anymore; it's a demand, which I think is is extremely appropriate and understandable, and and good ultimately. So I think also extending that to other, what would be defined as other racial groups or, or other minority groups in the United States and, and elsewhere is, is critical because I think, I think what's, what I think about whiteness in particular is that in order for whiteness to even exist, it has to create these divisions amongst different groups of people in order for it to prosper, in order for it to see itself as being in a privileged position in which ignorance is is something that's chosen. It's like a willful ignorance that I think white people are now being forced again and again. It's happened many, many times throughout hundreds of years of history, but they're being forced again to to look at that and say, like, what is what is whiteness and how does whiteness create these arbitrary but not uh, nonetheless very significant divisions among people? Mm-hmm. And like you say, with the uh, Indian community in the United States, South Asians and and the like mm-hmm. that are trying to just make it and survive and be seen as a member of the, I guess, the American mm-hmm. community or the American project, but they have to do that. I guess in order to do that, they have to then see themselves as separate from other minority groups that are right. suffering under the yeah, legacies right. of so, colonialism. So, so correct. So what what comes out is that in the last 15 years, you have within the community, like within the field of psychology, you have several second generation South Asians, Indian Americans, who have taken up this question of what does it mean to be South Asian? How do you create solidarity with brown and black folks in educational spaces, workspaces, public spaces, especially post 9-11? Post 9-11 was a very important moment for Indian Americans, especially South Asian identity, when so many South Asian Muslims were highly racialized. They were surveyed. You know, there was a surveillance uh, they were put under surveillance, uh, their movements, their families, um, and and many South Asians were rounded up. Those who looked like who were looked so called Middle Eastern or looked they were called the enemy. They were called unpatriotic. Their citizenship was called into question. Um, and so, for example, the Sikh diaspora or the Sikh community, you know, experienced like almost like a five hundred percent increase. Uh, of uh, hate crime. So did the Muslim population around that. So what the new second generation uh, South Asians, Indians, and many other Asian Americans have pointed out is a need for this political solidarity. First is to confront the racism and specifically the anti-blackness that exists within ourselves, the conditioned 
spaces and bodies in which we it lives in our practices and we speak about it, the sort of silence around it. And then second is how do you confront it? And second, what can you do uh, to create a much more um, uh, a, a solidarity that is rooted in an anti-racist and you know anti um, uh, in 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 rooted in anti-racist framework and a framework that speaks for racial justices or racial equality. So that's been the second kind of project of how to undo or or the you know the internal racism that immigrants particularly immigrants have brought with them from their own conditioning and socialization because they've lived in deep caste hierarchies deep social hierarchies as such and then they tend to reproduce that and in some ways by aligning in some ways and not speaking of by aligning with white supremacy by seeking proximity to it by seeking cover under it and not speaking about uh, uh the racial injustice in their communities and not calling out and speaking has also rewarded them, you see. And there, I think, uh, the second generation or newer projects, um, and in, my, in one of my articles, I've outlined like at least 12 organizations. Mm-hmm. You know, they're very South Asian, meaning they're Indians, Bangladeshis, Nepalis, Pakistanis, coming together to really speak about and challenge some of this... Uh, um, internalized racism that exists within, and then the dangers and the toxicity. They're very specifically spoken about what is the cost of not speaking, or what is the cost of uh, silence. I found a, a wonderful article, I think it was written by Yang in CNN.com, about the, uh, just came out, I think, three to four days ago, about how complicity, Asian or South Asian complicity um, in creating structures of racism works by silence and how uh, I think one of the questions you know he's drawing on another memoir written by an Asian American woman um, called Minor Feelings and he sort of reads this um, um, kind of passage uh, somewhere uh, which is you know really struck with me uh, um, don't have it uh, again here. Maybe I should have been much more prepared. But, but it's <laughs> okay. really about um, uh, um, sorry here. Uh, yeah, I, this. Let me quote this. I thought this was really powerful. So he's quoting from Kathy Park's uh, book, which I have with me, uh, but I haven't started, you know, reading. Uh, it's called Minor Feelings in Asian American Reckoning. And he says, one of the most jarringly apt summaries of the insidious nature of silence, he says, the problem with silence is that it can't speak up and say why it's silent. And so silence collects, becomes amplified, takes on a life outside our intentions. In that silence can get misread as indifference or avoidance. And eventually the silence passes over into forgetting. So silence is a scar that forms over the small, persistent wounds of our lives as Asian Americans. Silence is what our immigrant forebearers learned when they first arrived in this country to hide the awkwardness of their second language speech, to swallow the bitterness of petty slights, to bite their tongues so as to not escalate it into major ones. So silence is what we teach, he says, intergenerationally. And that's what I was calling out to. So when this young woman whom I spoke about 
when she had the microphone, she must have gone on for 30 minutes speaking about the violence of racial violence that's being done to her and her family in a community when nobody wants to play with her child because they see her, she puts it in quotation as a dark child. Mm. But when I ask her to confront and give me and call it racism, there's complete silence. It's mm. interesting. And then that silence. And, and so what I was trying to argue in my book is to set a ways in which silence transforms into forgetting politics of forgetting and into what we can say is a politics of humiliation, that is self-humiliation. You know, and then you walk around with this humiliation as well because you feel humiliated, you don't belong. So, you know, and that's something. Uh, what I was speaking earlier is that a new generation of scholars, whether within psychology but also within South Asian communities, have been pointing out to this very um, a toxic consequences. You know. Mm-hmm. What happens when the silence lives in your body and, and when lives within your head and what is the cost of it as such? Yeah. Something I've been thinking about and um, with these these massive protests and, uh, you know, there, there's calls, for instance, right now to defund the police or abolish the police. Um, there's basically an effort to dismantle the actual institutions that are perpetuating white supremacy. Mm-hmm in a very mm-hmm. real sense, in the very physical lives of people, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's very important. Um, but what is also happening is, uh, you know, I've been, I've been listening to interviews with um, uh, various people of color, uh, black individuals who are talking about how, you know, it's great that their white friends are being activated. They're now beginning to reflect on their own whiteness and how that impacts um, them. Um and they talk about the very difficult situation they're in where they're like, look, we get it and we're happy that you're finally seeing it. But I mean, it's unfortunate that's taken so long and such a dramatic shift for white folks to just begin to look at themselves and how they're complicit in perpetuating this hundreds of years of, of, of colonialism, of racism, of white supremacy up to the present day. Um. But something I was thinking about in relation to your work in decolonizing psychology is that let's say that we get to this, I don't know what point you are in this process, but let's say we begin to really begin to incorporate indigenous perspectives um, and begin to actually have a decolonized psychology. Okay. Now, I imagine what would then begin to happen, and I imagine it's happening right now, is that those structures then would not be accommodating to perpetuating the colonial legacy of, of psychology mm-hmm. anymore. And in fact, what would then start happening is that the indigenizing, the decolonial psychology itself would begin to reflect on the colonizers and begin to actually see, why do you feel that you had to perpetuate this system? Why do mm-hmm. you feel compl- like that your silence or your complicity in this was necessary? And how mm-hmm. come you didn't know anything about it? So in a way, I guess I'm asking, how can psychology in becoming decolonized can actually be reflected back at those that were the colonizers? And what does that say about the colonizers themselves? Yeah, I mean, that's a challenge. That's a, that's a big question. Yeah, it that is. is <laughs> you know, that is, how do you um, dismantle? It's very similar to asking the question you asked earlier, how do you dismantle white supremacy? 
in a way that goes beyond activism on Facebook and, uh, uh, you know, Twitter, where you forward tweets and you, I mean, those are why are important. Um, many um, um, black activists and scholars have spoken about uh, taking very meaningful action, such as, you know, defunding um, the police uh, and creating more spaces for multiracial solidarity where the kind of risk is shared, for example. So, uh, so I think in, a, in that same way, I would, I would answer the question is, I think we are far from really thinking about what a decolonized, to me, it's a verb, decolonizing. So we're still in the process. Uh, and we have just begun to excavate, open up this conversation. We've just, uh, as more and more stories are coming out of uh, marginalized populations of what it means to be a person of color in this country, what does it mean to live under oppression, and if you nothing else, um, what the recent movement of Black Lives Matter has really brought to forefront is the accountability that's not happened. Is the uh, is is in every branch, every area of life, uh, the um, so-called racist structures have lived and festered. So whether it's banking, um, insurance, medicine, school housing, real estate, uh, public goods, tax and systems, they're all being um, uh, seen through the lens and enacted for white advantage. So in a similar way that that excavation is just beginning, the, uh, that top, that, that so-called undoing has been happening. It's not that it hasn't been happening, it's been happening in this, in this way that's fully mobilized is what we have to do with also the field of psychology, not psychology, but also this whole entire social science disciplines. So to me, uh, what a, coloni a decolonized, as you said, vision of it really is to first ask question about how did we get here? You know, what, is, what are the pillars? You know, we think about pillars, you know, of our society, like capitalism in a pillar, white, white supremacy is a pillar you know, in indigenous um, genocide of uh, indigenous people is one of the factors, historical um, slavery, for example. So those are um, tragic, heartbreaking, structural, um, um, institutional factors that have led to particular kinds of knowledge about self and about belief about who we are as a society. To undo that is a is what the project of decolonization really is to kind of uh, um, start with that history and to lay that bare essentially. So we first have to we have to first get to uh, what that looks like and in indigenous uh, you know cultures and in indigenous uh, in, um, uh, societies where there are there is. Uh, a movement afoot to reclaim that, reclaim storytelling, reclaim myth, reclaim ideas about healing, mental health, um, reclaim uh, land, reclaim water, reclaim rights, uh, reclaim, you know, you can never get back to maybe the pre-colonial space that we think about that was pure 
or that we think about in our mind that doesn't sort of exist. We have, there it has layers of modernity, post-colonialism, globalization, neoliberalism. But there are ways in which we, we can undo it by first asking this question about the question of what we call, what I would call two reckonings, the reckoning with history and then the reckoning with the present moment and seeing what are the connections between that. So that to me would be one of the projects to begin with. And second, we have to ask ourselves is, do we even want to call this psychology or why call it psychology? So what can emerge from it as many meaningful voices will speak to it uh, is to first do the, uh, to really look at the, not just the colonial legacy, but the ways in which uh, whiteness, white supremacy, white ideas uh, of the modern subject, of the family, of self, of who we are, is projected through those sets of practices historically. So that project is going on, but it's small. I think that needs to be bigger. So once we have a very good idea of what got us here, then we can really think about um, what a decolonized you know, psychology uh, would look like. And in that I think you've already pointed to some of the threads. One is an interrogation, one is self-reflexivity, of course, but other is to think about viable spaces where there's not just one indigenous psychology. There are many, across many nations, many tribes, many parts of the world, what we call the global south, people are asking all these questions and trying to come up with going back into history going back into uh, history, which is also concerning not just tradition, not just uh, uh, fragments of uh, ideas about the good life and the religion and so on, but also really spe specifically asking questions about social inequality. So one way in which I have argued for looking at decolonized psychology is not just about the mind, but also looking at how the mind is shaped with structures of inequality. So one project of a decolonized psychology would be to look at chronic hunger, to look at unemployment, to look at 2.5 billion people who live in extreme poverty and deprivation, to look at how, for example, both COVID, the pandemic, has laid bare the pre-existing condition of racial inequality, but also global inequality. I said, those are all, I would say, questions of the mind because they're connected to questions of, of environment, questions of culture, questions of structures. If we, if we divorce the mind as somehow separate from these structures, then you get a psychology that's apolitical, historical, and very empty. What decolonizing psychology is to kind of remind ourselves is that we are shaped and embedded in these structures. And, and a decolonizing psychology then sort of speaks to what those structures are. Right? You know, one is, of course, capitalism, the other is racism. So those would be, I would say, two very important pillars, themes, which would be very pivotal to looking at what a decolonized psychology would look like. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I just have to just remark that it is, um, it is that that to be, I guess, to decolonize psychology may be to actually dismantle, like we may not even have psychology in the sense that we've understand it, understood right. it to be. I mean, you might actually be deconstructing something mm -hmm. completely right. <laughs> in a very real right. sense. 
Right. And I, I think, mean, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's got to freak out some of your colleagues. That's got to freak out some of the folks that are like, but this is objective and we're standing outside. Like there's this, and that's kind of the problem is it's not that it's, it's, I think it, it challenges some of the deepest assumptions that we have about the Western Mm. perspective the western project and and what it's tied up with it's right right i mean that's one and also sort of how does the west live in the global south what forms it has taken there it's not that the west doesn't live there you know that's what colonialism western colonialism does it 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 leaves its footprint in the mines you know as as one pioneering indian um psychologist speaks about the second colonization, the colonization of the mind, where we are still, where, where the colonizers gave us the terms and conditions in which we have lived our life for centuries. Those terms and conditions don't evaporate when the flag, the new flag comes up and the old flag goes down. The, those terms and conditions continue to flourish in some ways. Because those, you know, we changed them, but they still are very present in our life. And whether it's in parts of Africa, whether it's parts of Asia, but I think it's it's important to 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 kind of think about is that while in some ways the legacies of colonialism, physical, may be over in parts of Asia and Africa, they're not over. That's what we call it settler colonialism as distinct in the United States in places like Australia and New Zealand where indigenous scholars have asked us about continuously questions about what does it mean to unsettle the settler colonial state. You know, so when you're asking the question, I mean, there is, and there, I think, um, many scholars who work in the field of indigenous psychology also ask this question and also create this body of knowledge that may not necessarily be fit within the structures of psychology they have, we have right now. So it will be, you know, um, like think about intergenerational storytelling, oral storytelling, think about the lessons and the wisdom in our myths, in, in our origin stories for so many different cultures, think about, um, you know, we think about mindfulness as one, but, you know, the power of mindfulness and, and mindfulness is not what the word was used. It was, as I pointed out in the Mad in America uh, podcast, it was, it, was, it was Vipassana meditation. You know, there was a specifically insight meditation that's been going on for 2,500 years which really dealt with the question of the mind as such. That is, how do you, how, how do you not suffer was a big question, you know, for Buddha and, and, and that, got, that got laced into Hinduism, into Jainism, into Buddhism, which became Buddhism. But those are questions about impermanence, about suffering or Dukkha, Dukkha is in suffering. Those are concepts have been around for 2,500 years. They are a psychology because these were individuals who are dealing with what does it mean to be liberated from suffering? What does it mean to live a life that is not particularly attached to material pursuits? What does it mean to sacrifice? What does it mean to do duty? 
it was there in Chinese philosophy. You can see semblances of it in Egyptian philosophy, Persian philosophy. So to me, those are all parts of what I would call a psychology that needs to be built or revisited, not necessarily relegated to philosophy or religion as such. Um, so that would be another really important ways in which we can think about uh, the larger project of psychology. Okay. So like expanding the boundaries, rethinking what, what that means. Right. Yeah, there's a lot for me to think about. Uh, yeah, I mean, those are, those are I, think the, I think the conversation as we are having is there's the legacy of past when we think about racial inequality, racial injustices, uh, you know, settler colonialism, colonialism, genocide that's happened, and then the question of the present moment. So this present moment that we see, the protests, the people coming together from different parts across many communities, for um, you know, very much rooted in in um, um, in trying to dismantle anti-blackness uh, through Black Lives Matter is 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 connected to that past. So so it's not different. You know, uh, there is a connection there, um, um, and we continue to see that. So I think I think there is the you can think of this in this current moment as a convergence of two pandemics, the pandemics of racism, racial project and white supremacy of 400 years. And then this other pandemic of six, eight weeks converging together and, and showing how disproportionately again, it is attaching itself to bodies that are essentially black and brown, especially, especially African-Americans. You could see it in another symptom of this racial inequality that's that it's highlighting. So the so the Black Lives Matter project starting is highlighting the oppression and the effects of living in the impression, having you know basically um, your you know having your neck. Mm, you know, pressed or oppressed and for 400 years. So if you think about George Floyd, a police man brutally killing him by putting his knee on his neck and he's unable to breathe, that to me is an example of what's been going on for 400 years for black Americans where there has been uh, the knee of, so to speak, white supremacy, white power has been put on um Black Americans for you know forced upon for four hundred years, and so this I can't breathe has been going on for a long time, and that's resulted in 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 this um, in this today's uh, you know movement that you could see is to dismantle, to call out, and to kind of undo uh, very clearly the structures that have led to this movement. So in that sense, to me, psychology. It's calling out for psychology to be more active in understanding its history, but also understanding how it can align itself with other activists. Or, you know, uh, what can we learn from them uh, who are at the forefront? Uh, in that sense, it's not separate. Just because that's community-based activism doesn't mean psychology cannot 
uh, learn from it too. So that that will be another space, you know, uh, as you were speaking about the protests that are going on, is is what it is that psychology can do and learn from these protests. Are uh, first of all, it's to understand its own positionality, own complicity. But apart from that, what is that it can do to support, not necessarily lead, but support this movement for you know equal. Uh, racial justice rights of housing and schooling and healthcare and so those to me are not outside the confines of psychology. There is a psychology involved in it, but a psychology that's connected to deeper structures. You know, so so, so to me those are the important, I think, conversations of the past and the present. Um, um, just one last piece. I mean, one more is you know. I mean, you can think about how you know how the covid-19 pandemic has kind of put a spotlight on these on the disproportionate numbers of uh, african americans um who are who have died um um i think it's the last i read where there were about uh, 20,000 or more than 20,000 african americans or one in 2000 has been impacted by it and and you know county by county you see in many places although some of the data is early that there have been significantly higher deaths um in you know in the navajo nation for example as well in st louis missouri for example in chicago for example um and what they really point out to is 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 something where you know we're we are looking at is not that somehow African-Americans were left behind. There's a great article in Boston Review written by, uh, you know, historians that they basically, if you look at the disproportionate number of deaths that, uh, that African-Americans have succumbed to, it's really not because they were left behind or, or they were, they were somehow accidental. What they call it is willful policy failure. And that willful policy failure, meaning they were offered up, they use the word, they were offered up by history of racist privilege and profiteering. There's a difference between this offered up uh, as opposed to they were just left behind. Left behind is somehow this idea of this is tragic and this is accidental and not intentional. Whereas when you construct a history where you show how a group of people have been explored and offered up to this, um, uh, devastating disease in the present, then you get a very different answer. And to me, uh, that article really made very clear, and it speaks about the slow violence of history. So, um, you know, so 400 years is slow violence of uh, systematic slow that built brick by build, brick by brick that is called that, um, you know, takes away rights, that takes away. Um, of, of, of African-Americans, but also of other people of color in, and specifically though they're speaking about African-Americans being oppressed and disadvantaged and how this history of um, um, uh, St. Louis, the history of St. Louis is being played across different parts of the United States. Um, it's not just that city where they, I think one of the statistics they mention is that there are something like 75 or 70% of uh, 
you know, the population of the, of the total numbers, I don't exactly recall, but a high number of African-Americans who have succumbed to COVID or become COVID positive. And in their analysis, they're basically articulating that this is a scenario that's being played out across the country. Um, um, and then they provide the historical reasons for it, including the, some of them I've already, you know, uh, um, mentioned here before, but there are, um, you know, others which they mention. And I recently did a keynote around this for a conference on uh, the psychology of global crises. And I just mentioned some of these. It's like 400 years of whiteness as a creed and domination, state subsidy of whiteness, federal subsidies of white flight. African-Americans are 12 times more likely than whites to live in concentrated poverty. Effects of slavery, Jim Crow, continued black vulnerability. Tax policy that skewed towards white gain, living with environmental toxins crumbling sanitary structure, redlining, racial disparities in mass incarceration, climate of abuse and impunity, police brutality, laws that pose mortal danger, mortal danger to young black men, lack of social services, decent schools, lack of nutritious food, African-Americans in that area have low wages, long commutes, fewer benefits, zip codes that create crushed dreams and lack of social mobility. People feel they've been stuck in place there's large racial disparities in any index of social well-being. So they are delivered to this disease by the U.S. history, and that's what um, Cornell and, you know, um, um, that's what uh, um, uh, Gordon and his colleagues point to, you know. In that short excerpt I read is a kind of compressed history, but each of this kind of continues, you know, to which I think the, the Black Lives Matter movement is kind of pointing to. I mean, in by itself, you take one of those injustices is a big reckoning. But if you add up, you can then sort of see what the cumulative effect of it is. And to me, doing a you know decolonized psychology is to in some ways, and I'm not sure I have the answer to it. I'm also struggling as to how do you take all of that those pieces of history and then understand and create. Um, so that's why in that presentation I gave, I call it racial coloniality, cultural coloniality that continues to live within, um, continues to live um, within our, our systems, uh, within our current systems as such, within our, so decolonizing psychology, along with other psychologists might point a way to see how this racial coloniality is reproduced. You know, the pandemic put a spotlight on that, right? Yes. Uh, Kianga Yamata-Taylor, New Yorker, I think she called it the Black Plague, mm. Mm. highlighting these asymmetries. And I just reiterated some of this. So to me, um, that's one, you know, I think um, uh, one place where psychology can very definitely meaningfully speak to um, 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 the reasons, for example, both the structural reason and what it does to mental health too. You know, the pandemic of mental health um, equally, they're not kind of separate, you know. So what I gave you, read out to you, is the historical, the structural, the institutional uh, factors, but I think they they manifested through the body. They manifested through our, what we call the psyche or, or through the self, and that's the sort of where psychology 
that's a broader psychology can really speak through meaningfully of this mediation that ha- needs to happen between the history and between that individual. Mm-hmm. Well, I will just say here as a final note, um, what you're talking about is all these different pieces and all of them coming together. I think that speaks to how we're all, it's not up to one particular group of people. It's not up to just black people. It's not up to just South Asians and uh, other minority groups. It's not up to any one particular group or set of groups. It's everybody has to be a part of this and sort of bringing all these points together. Um, what seem mm-hmm. like frag, like the divisions that you're speaking to that impact certain communities over others more mm-hmm. as COVID-19, the pandemic has highlighted so starkly. Um, you know, this is a definitely a moment where we cannot look away and we have to participate in that process of decolonizing um, in whatever field we're in, whether you're in psychology or whether you're just a regular worker, you know, if you're someone, you yeah. know, we're all, we're all can participate in this. And that's what's, I think, really being forced upon us. We have to reckon with this. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I know our time is short and, but since you brought about every day, I think, uh, what I was really struck by one of the stories of post-pandemic, just, you know, there are the statistics I spoke about, but there was this woman, I think you might have seen a story about, whose her name is Annie Grant, and she's 55 years old, and she works in, in a poultry well, factory um, uh, in Georgia. And, you know, she had fever for two nights, and but yet she was asked to come to work. Suddenly, from being like a low-wage worker who works for eight hours a day, the government says that you're you're now an essential worker, you know. But essential workers are also disposable workers. It's an interesting paradox. Yeah. On the one hand, and and she she sent a text to her family saying, "I'm I'm, you know, I'm being required to be here. I don't want to be here. Something like that." But it was a text, um, uh, something like. You know, they told me I had to come back to work and then she became progressively ill and she was put on a ventilator and she died. Yeah. Uh, You know, a few weeks later, to me, that's kind of emblematic of, um, you know, who's essential, who's expendable. So the, 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 I think you pointed out really well is that the pandemic is also reflected back on the the economy of disposable bodies like who whose bodies are secure and safe and whose are not and i think there was a an insightful article by adam server who writes in the atlantic that part of thinking about what kind of post pandemic or post covid is to sort of what's highlighted also is that we need a new racial contract right now the social contract is that you know, bodies of color, especially African-Americans, are invisible, oppressed, and there isn't, they don't have the, the possession, the rights, the, the health disparities that they have to live with. And he has a very interesting, you know, kind of excerpt where he sort of says that part of the racial contract changed even during the pandemic when the political elites and the financial elites found out that more of the people who are dying are people of color, it became less, he says, of a national emergency than just an inconvenience, he says. He uses his words. Mm. So there's a difference. The narrative of death 
was no longer, according to him, a national emergency, but it got seen as more of an inconvenience. Yeah. And to me, his point in the end was that if we really take anything out of this, is we have to change the, the idea of this implicit racial contract um, of, uh, and part of that racial contract, the story of American freedom and liberty is the original sin where both genocide and slavery have been written out of that form for many years, not just now. But now we see with projects like 1619 is a rewriting of that, is a reclaiming and re re-understanding from a very different point of view. So, so to me, that another area is is you know i think it was a 1619 project in new york times where then you know the author mentions that we usually think about the origin story of america in 1776 but say example if you move the sh shift the focus and start from 1619 when the first slaves are brought here in virginia you get a very different story of what American freedom means and the contradictions and the paradox and the constitutional struggles of whom it spoke for, whom it didn't speak for, and so on. And I, I and part of to me when I said decolonizing psychology is 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 bringing all of that in those struggles and and in in very material, not just historical, but also pointing out to material outcomes and so on. Someone like Annie Grant. How did someone like Annie Grant become? essential one day and expendable the next day mm -hmm. yeah yeah i'll just say that that cuts through a lot of different things it cuts into the nature of the capitalist system the legacy of settler colonialism of slavery of, of, of white supremacy uh all of these different subjects so i think that that's really um I think people are being forced, and I say this as a as someone who's white, that we're all being forced to acknowledge how all of these things intersect and play upon each other. And it makes I can I, I know it makes many people uncomfortable, but so what? You know, that's that's you know, challenging any assumptions that you have makes you feel a little uncomfortable at the very least. And that's nothing compared to what many people have to experience on a daily basis in this country. Right. Um, so I, I just wanted to say that I think that that is incumbent on on white Americans to really start having that conversation at the very yeah. least. I mean, that's that's the least yeah. you can do right now. It's just just even talk about it. Just sort right, of right. Not be silent anymore. Yeah. Right. And and that's that's I think that passage about you know silence, indifference, or also how does one get into a position that none of this is going on affects you or you. Forget about silence. You're not even in a position where you have to make a choice between silence and speaking out because your life just kind of merrily goes along. Yep. Yep. And and that's sort of and 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 you know part of the conversation is you know again I'm going back to um, that article by uh, Adam Server where he kind of writes about very clearly um, you know part of this idea of whiteness and the racial contract, he says, is sort of the du duality or kind of competing stories, which makes sometimes this conversation difficult because he says, you know, white Americans struggling with opioid addiction are a national tragedy. He says, struggling white farmers in Iowa taking billions in federal assistance are hardworking Americans. 
down on their luck. Struggling single parents in cities using food stamps are welfare queens. You know, black Americans struggling in the cocaine epidemic are a bio underclass created by a pathological culture. White Americans struggling with opioid addiction are a national tragedy though. Poor European immigrants who flocked to in America with virtually no immigration restrictions came the right way. Whereas poor Central American immigrants, many of them who are languishing in detention centers are evading a Baroque and unforgiving system are gang members and terrorists. So the coronavirus epidemic has rendered this racial contract invisible in multiple ways. And that's what's part of the conversation that you were speaking about is to then wrestle with some of these um, plot lines, storylines that don't make sense. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. And I think uh, that's the, that's the, I, I say this is the moment we're in, but I want to be clear that this has always been here. It's not like now it's just a big deal, like, oh, we have to talk about it. It's like, we've always had to talk about it. But I think now we're at a, such a dramatic, I, I feel such a dramatic shift happening that if you're not paying attention to this, then I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's right in everyone's face. It's like, nobody can ignore it. It's it's so stark, so obvious, so present in the lives of pretty much everyone in, at least in the United States. I can speak as, as a member of this, uh, or as a part of this nation or whatever. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's instructive. I think recently Charles Blow writing for New York Times has captioned his column calling dear white America, our allies. This is definitely a different, this is stark, this is, but also please don't let us down. He's, he writes this very compelling, beautiful message of what allyship really means and that how in the past we've had several such moments, but after the, what he calls, um, the racial inequality Woodstock and the racial inequality Coachella, you know, people coming together, celebrating goes away. Mm -hmm. Then what are we left with? Like who's there? You know, he, you know, that it shouldn't be just a, um, a, a, a cosmetic um, affirmation uh, in rooted in kind of guilt and, and but but it needs much more broader struggle for it to be continued you know yeah well i just i just want to say that when we talk about decolonizing psychology that when i when i talked about how it's reflective of whiteness and the colonizers themselves Mm -hmm. that that's i think an, an integral part of this and so um it says and and also and also others who are it's not just racial, it's also mm-hmm. class-based. So it's sure. also like South Asians I pointed to and other groups who have some fragments, depends, you know what I'm saying? So it's uh, definitely, um, um, there is a white power, the white structure, the white rage, white fragility, you, you know, you were mentioning earlier about whiteness, but also other complicity that happens to other groups in, you know, which together becomes a kind of foundation of, uh, um, um, or white supremacy in different ways. Absolutely. Or advancing that agenda of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sunil, I really thank you for this conversation. I think we covered uh, all the angles that I at least wanted to get at and more. I, you know, 
you try to plan for yeah. these things as much as you can. But you know, the the best thing about doing these interviews is just the organic um, quality of them when it just sort of becomes its own thing without me br- bringing in some sort of uh, you know point by point agenda like we have to get to all these points. But I think we not only did that, but we just expanded even deeper and further outwards, and that's that's what I, I that's what I go for. I hope you felt that. Oh yeah, I did. Yeah, and so. I would, I would. I know that you're you're the author of two books. Uh, there's American Karma, Race, Culture, and Identity in the Indian Diaspora, as published in 2007. And then he also had a recent book that came out in 2018, uh, Decolonizing Psychology, Globalization, Social Justice, and Indian Youth Identities. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I just found out about you by just looking up your name. Of course, I, I know you, I don't think you have a website, as far as I'm aware, but I know I found you through your university profile, and I've just read other articles and other interviews. As we mentioned, Matt in America did an excellent podcast interview with you. There's a transcript of that um, on their website, and I'll be pro- providing links to all of those resources in the description right. of this episode. Is there any other places that you'd like to direct people towards? Um. You could just put that profile link that my college has because that has some of my articles and some of the works and maybe to people are interested to, you know, to know where to get the book, maybe in a link to. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, I try to make sure it's really easy for people to find, you know, your book and where they can learn more about it and yeah, purchase it. If they want to know more about it, yes. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, no, I'll be be absolutely sure to provide all those resources in the description um, Sunil, I really thank you for this conversation. Thank you for, for agreeing to do this. Oh, well, thank you for engaging me with this. I appreciated the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you would like to support this project monetarily, here are a few options. You can send a one-time donation through PayPal. Go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast, and you can treat that like a bit of a tip jar. If you like this episode, or any other episode of this podcast in particular, consider throwing a few bucks Patrick's way. That would really be helpful. And if you would really like to sustain this work and support this project more regularly, consider supporting this project through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness and donate to the production of this podcast for $1 or more a month. And by doing that, you'll gain early access to these interviews and discussions before the official public release. And you will also gain access to some exclusive content there as well. As the great psychedelic bard Terrence McKenna said, take it easy, dude, but take it. Take it.